Section four of On Famine Fever by Rudolf Virchow. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami, M.D. On Famine Fever, Part Four. The history of the camp fever, too, teaches us to recognize the influence of want as a causative condition. In the besieged fortresses, as in the tents of the besieger, disease as a rule spreads in proportion as the support is inadequate. Recently Jacot frankly demonstrated this of the Crimean War. He concludes his remarks with these striking words. Typhus is less the work of circumstances than of the men who influence and determine them. It is not the result of the conditions under which war is carried on, or better said, it is not war, but the men who wage it that breed the typhus. However, among the blunders committed, Jaco particularly emphasizes defective nourishment, from the fact that the losses in the English army at the commencement of the war, when the commissariat was so blameworthy, were by far greater than among the French troops. While afterwards the proportion changed, as after great exertion the English soldiers were better cared for. The comparison of the various modern wars with each other appears to me to be especially interesting just in reference to this. The shorter wars, as the Italian of 1859 and the Bohemian of 1866, must naturally be excluded, for the typhus demands a certain time to form and develop. But there can scarcely be a greater contrast than between the great wars at the beginning of the century and the Crimean War on the one hand and the American War of Rebellion on the other. Camp fever in its most virulent aspect, raging during the two former, while we miss it almost entirely in the latter. After the official reports of the members of the medical staff of the North American Army, the spotted fever occurred only at intervals, and to a limited extent, though the troops lay in great numbers and for a longer time at single places many serious febrile symptoms exhibiting themselves. But nowhere has any nation expended so much care on the providing an army with food and all appliances for the preservation of health, as did the American people in this war, every class in society vying with each other in noble emulation. Granted want alone does not produce typhus, Still, in a great measure, it prepares men to receive and develop it in their system. A population reduced and weakened by hunger offers the most favorable soil for the growth of an epidemic, even supposing it has been called forth by other causes. Nor is this to be overlooked, that in the fewest number of cases a simple withdrawal of provisions takes place. It is the resorting to all manners of substitutes, and those frequently of the very worst sort, thus introducing noxious elements into a system unable to offer resistance. Whether the decomposing state of those substitutes only partially deserving the name of food is of force to produce typhus I leave unanswered, as modern research has overturned many apparently incontrovertible facts of bygone experience. In any case it is undeniable that food received in a corrupting state is to be reckoned to one of the most preparative and promotive causes. But what we have termed overcrowding has an immeasurably greater influence. 
It was first in the history of the prison fever that our attention was particularly directed to it, and at this moment it deserves our special study, as at present in Ostpreußen, the prisons have again been pointed out as suspicious centres from whence typhus spreads. One of the first writers who have called our attention to this is Lord Bacon. He ascribes the baleful influence to the prison atmosphere, which is engendered when prisoners have been shut up for any length of time in close, dirty rooms. He tells how dangerous it is, for in some instances, during the legal proceedings, judges as well as a great number of the audience were taken ill and died. Such trials received in England the significant name of the Black Assizes. A whole string of them is enumerated in the period between 1522 and 1750. In the last year at the Black Assizes in the Old Bailey died four of the six members of the judges' bank, the Lord Mayor, two judges, and an alderman, besides a large proportion of the officers of the law. Sir John Pringle, the recorder of this tragic reminiscence, accompanied the English army in 1742 and 43 to Germany, afterwards to Flanders and Brabant, as physician general, and there first became acquainted with war typhus under the phase of hospital fever. He was the first to detect and prove the identity of jail with hospital fever, and to trace both to noxious effluvia corrupting the air. Since Hildebrand, in his celebrated work on contagious typhus, went over to his view, and clearly stated that an excess of human effluvia is alone the source of all typhus matter, it has become general, especially for spotted fever, which is for the most part presumed to originate in this manner. But here I must remark that this, in my opinion, is a too partial view of things. A certain disproportion of space to the number of individuals in it never fails to deteriorate the atmosphere. It may be to such a serious degree as to occasion the death of one or more individuals. But it is by no means said that spotted fever is thereby engendered, or that death is a consequence of that fever. So much as for the present can be said is that want of proper nourishment, and above all a very high degree of uncleanliness, are among the primary causes of spotted fever. The worse the ventilation, and the rarer the admission of fresh air, the more rapidly is typhus miasma formed in a confined space. Such a confined space may be a prison cell, a sick room, the hold of a ship or a casemate. The wear is indifferent. Nay, the close space may be found, whereas at first glance one would suppose just the very reverse. An army in the field, laborers by the roadside, the population of a village. All such are apparently so constantly in the open air that one must presume all the conditions present which are requisite for the dispersion, that is, the rendering innocuous, of the foul miasmata floating in the atmosphere. Nevertheless, we find here a union of circumstances perfectly similar to those found in filthy prisons. So long as an army is on the march, I admit it is not apt to breed typhus. At the most it may get it by transmission from others. But let an army encamp or go into quarters, more especially in bad weather when the men crowd together in their tents or rooms, you have all the requisites for overcrowding. 
laborers on a high road erect themselves mud huts of the very smallest dimensions, with space for only the occupants and their tools. Just in such mud huts, burrows, I should say, has spotted fever recently been bred in Forpommern and Ostpreußen. The more inclement the weather is, the greater necessity for the laborers to seek for refuge from the wet and cold in those close, damp, dirty holes, and so much the more are they exposed to be seized by illness. The same holds good for town and country dwellings. The fort or siege fever may serve as the precedent for such class of cases. To exemplify them, we have one only case to adduce, the circumstances of which in all respects resemble those of a siege. In the severe winter of 1808 and 1809, when the most piercing cold alternated with the mildest weather, the Fort Castel opposite Mayence, in itself a close, dirty place, overcrowded with a quantity of stranger pioneers, who the fortification works being interrupted on account of the cold, pined with their numerous families in the most abject state of misery. They housed mostly in stables, casemates, or in barns, starving and vainly hoping from day to day for the works to be reopened. At length, the Rhine likewise went beyond its banks, and all the low-lying land as far as the eye could reach was under water. Castel with its bulwarks looked like a floating fortress on the great watery waste. Under these circumstances, towards end of the year 1808, the typhus fever broke out among those unemployed hands. Rapidly it passed to all classes, leaving not a doubt of its contagious qualities. By its spreading in time to Hochheim, Rüsselheim, and Floresheim, all in the neighborhood. Every single house may at times be likened to an overcrowded fortress. I have already adverted to the hovels of the Irish laborers as to hotbeds of fever. Any set of peoples occupying a space disproportioned to their number incur the danger of sickening. There is the Silesian district of Rubnik. For a course of thirteen years the number of inhabitants had outgrown that of their dwellings, the proportion of increase being that of twenty to one. It is easily intelligible that among a rural population such a huddling together of dwellings is productive of more evil consequences in winter than in summer, when almost everyone is at work out of doors. Whereas in the cold season the inmates are bound to the house, every opening, as windows and doors, being kept as close shut as possible. Such a state is naturally aggravated under the pressure of want of work and food and fuel. When the whole household, in fact, in a state of dull depression, are huddled together in a single room. That is obviously one of the reasons why spotted fever so frequently breaks out in winter and in years of famine. There is formed, then, a house, I may likewise say, a room miasma, as in an overcrowded hole there is formed a ship's miasma, which, however it may arise, engenders a ship's fever among crew and passengers. Thus we have a limited epidemic that we may without further scruple term a house fever or room fever. Anyone entering such a space and remaining some time in it is exposed to the danger of falling sick. Not exactly by contagion, for he simply sickens as anyone going to a marshy district is exposed to catch marsh fever, intermittent fever. 
It may likewise be carried from place to place by means of clothes or other substances, not that I should exactly say by contagion in the common acceptation as from man to man. This explains many of the contradictions relative to its contagious qualities, which are understood now in a wider, now in a narrower signification. Thus also is explained, be it remarked, the close connection between the different sorts of war fever and the varieties of famine fever scarcely be intelligible but for the middle connecting links here specified. We dare not, however, overlook that in all those phases of distress, the third point mentioned above comes into prominent consideration. The corrupt nature of spoiled provisions, the impureness of the atmosphere caused by the effluvia from human dwellings, have all been insisted on. Only the impurity or pollution arising from human excrement remains to be mentioned. Latterly, the medical men have inclined more and more to the view that the enteric typhus, differing in some degree from the spotted, may be traced back to this source. The great strictness with which sanitary measures are enforced just in England, the great care bestowed on keeping the privies, the sewerage and drains in a clean, wholesome condition, of preserving the drinking water and the water of the rivers pure, all this is the result of the conviction that neglect of public cleanliness in towns and villages, as also in private dwelling-houses, revenges itself at no distant period on body and life. Whether we incline more to the supposition that noxious particles are diffused in the atmosphere from accumulations of human excrement, and again received into our bodies by means of our breathing organs, or whether we prefer to view that bodies in a state of decomposition penetrate the soil and so reach the wells and the watermen drink. In any and every case, the point is to remove the filth before it passes over to a state of decomposition and assumes the qualities of typhus poison. How nigh the notion of the presence of real poison is among a sickening population, and especially of its being in the drinking water, is shown us by the conceptions of the Middle Ages. At that time few epidemies ran their course, that the suspicion of poisoning the well did not attach to someone, the fury of the populace turning first against the Jews. Epidemics and Jewish persecutions seemed by some internal law of necessity to go hand in hand, a sad instance of how the human mind, even in the perfectly justifiable path of investigation, can by prejudice be diverted from the true course and end by making the innocent suffer for the guilty. Many in those our modern days inclined very much to make not the Jews, but the Democrats responsible for all the evil now wrought in the world. With what pleasure do we lay our own burden on the shoulders of others? No doubt the wells were poisoned, but not by single malicious individuals, but by the general negligence. The criminal is not a stranger. Those who raise the hue and cry are themselves, though unwittingly, their own worst enemies. Negligence and ignorance, those are the foes that must be combated, and every typhus epidemic should first of all be serviceable in disseminating common-sense notions about the causes of diseases, and calling upon all to promote by word and deed public and private cleanliness. 
bodily diseases should be regarded as nothing short of crime, for its most fruitful source likewise is, as we all know, ignorance and negligence. When in the year 1840 the typhus broke out in Scotland with desolating power, Allison, a clinical professor of Edinburgh, showed that the state of the poor and the inadequate measures of government bore a chief part of the blame. He further thus expressed himself that the occurrence of such epidemies should be an overpowering testimony to the lawgiver of the wretched condition of the poor. Corrigan, an Irish medical man in a work published, 1846, bearing the title Famine and Fever as Cause and Effect in Ireland, dwells at more length on the same idea. Parliament, it is true, had taken new steps toward the reform of the poor laws, the system of workhouses had been extended, the famine of 1846, however, had proved these measures to have fallen short of the necessity. The increasing distress swelled the numbers in the poorhouses. The overcrowding engendered the contagious epidemic which in the shortest possible time turned the workhouses into hospitals, and a mortality ensued which weakly swept away from three to four hundred, which number rapidly increased to twenty-five hundred. Besides the poor tax, says von Kleinschrad, government expended eight millions over and above to rescue the Irish population in that fatal period from starvation. But similar sacrifices with similarly fruitless results will be repeated in every future catastrophe of a similar nature till the industrial and agricultural relations of the nations undergo a thorough transformation and the majority of the inhabitants are raised to independent producers, and thereby to that dignity of humanity, which alone affords a sure guarantee against bestial debasement and the impoverishing of the masses. We too are now in the position of making like sacrifices. Let us in passing recall to mind that in these twenty years very moderate progress indeed has been made in the insight how to deal with such subversions of the masses. I believe I had done at that time all that could be done to make the connection between disease and the political and social organization of the people clear. I wrote then, History has more than once shown that the destinies of great kingdoms were influenced by the sanitary condition of the nation or army, and it cannot any longer be doubted that the history of epidemic diseases must form an inseparable part of the history of human civilization. Epidemies are like gigantic finger-posts. Indicating to the statesman of higher aim, such an interruption has occurred in the development of his people as even a negligent cabinet dare not overlook. At that time I entertained greater hopes than I do now that statesmen of a nobler stamp would again get possession of the rudder of state. But behold, Ireland is still to this very day the land of famine fever and emigration, and as Ostpreußen at present, so is many another member of our native country, in the helpless condition of being, by the failure of one or two harvests, reduced to a state of starvation. Unfortunately, the experiences of twenty years have received but too true a confirmation 
by what an English medical man of standing, William Davidson, has said. Although our philanthropists are exceedingly active as long as an epidemic lasts, still as soon as it abates, they relax in their efforts, sinking into a state of comparative indifference, and the poor into their former habits, into filth and excess. How often must it be thundered forth that typhus is one of those diseases which in the greatest number of cases might have been avoided? Is there any difference between it and the plague which in former centuries swept over Europe in a rapid succession of epidemies? And the plague has not only disappeared out of Europe, but even out of its cradle-land, Egypt, after having made it her abode for nine centuries. It did not use to be in Egypt, either. During the times of the last pharaohs, the 194 years of the Persian occupation, the 305 of Alexander's and the Ptolemies, the whole period of the Roman possession, in short, so long as a good police and a certain continuity of culture existed, not a word was heard of the plague in Egypt. Nature has in no way altered her ways. The regular succession of the season, says Hecker, exists without a variation, ever since the Nile first precipitated itself from the Abyssinian mountains into the plain below. But, he goes on to say, the Egypt of today is no longer the splendid country of the pharaohs and the Ptolemies, famed for her fertility and the health of her children. It is ruled by avaricious and cruel barbarians. Slavery and brute force which succumb to the elements have taken the place of the intelligent practice of art and of persevering industry that could sway nature. It is about thirty years ago since this was written. Since then the plague has ceased to be the standing scourge of that country, while on the other hand there are no corresponding changes in nature or the weather to serve as an explanation. A species of national government has been established which has even made some approaches to a constitutional form, a government which has at least shown it comprehends that the well-being of a people is a necessary condition to a healthy financial condition. For if your farmer has to pay high taxes, why then he must be enabled to do so. Agriculture is improving, the canals repairing, nay, the steam carriage rolls along its iron path to the very foot of the pyramids. It is the newborn civilization that has driven the plague from her old haunts. When in the year 1848 I published my pamphlet on the typhus in Silesia, this happy turn in affairs had not yet become a matter of undoubted fact. I nevertheless considered myself justified in drawing the following conclusions on typhus fever from the ancient history of the plague. The logical answer to the question, how to obviate similar catastrophes as we had in Silesia, is simple and easy. Higher culture, greater liberty, and prosperity. Do we not see everywhere around us that national diseases allow of being traced back to defects in our social system? Let them talk as much as they will about this or that variation in the weather, about grand cosmical changes along with phrases of a like description. All those causes can never of themselves produce an epidemic, but they can foster it when by reason of mischievous social arrangements 
men have for a longer or shorter time lived in an abnormal state. Famine fever, however, possesses this advantage over her compeers, more particularly camp fever or war typhus, to express myself more generally. Namely, it belongs in a higher degree to the avoidable diseases. The vicissitudes of war may at times embarrass the very best military administration, rendering it impossible for them to feed, quarter, and do for an army with such forethought as to ward off all danger of sickness. But a district or a province which falls a prey to famine fever is only paying with pestilence for a long series of blunders. How many of those blunders the victims and the sufferers have themselves committed, how many the authorities must be judged separately in every separate case. But as we have already proved, carelessness and ignorance are at bottom somewhere, else timely and adequate measures must have been taken either by the people or the authorities. However, lasting assistance for the future is alone possible when thoughtful and self-acting men voluntarily combine in sufficient numbers to set on foot general sanitary measures in every parish and district. Let us hope that this so dearly bought experience will not be lost upon us, or, as so often before, be rendered futile. May this season of heavy trial we are now called on to pass through impress our people with the lasting consciousness that they dare not weary in the labor of peace, without which liberty and culture, the two stipulations for the general welfare and prosperity, cannot be made ours. A famine fever is a penalty which the people have incurred themselves through negligence and ignorance. End of section 4. Read by Pamela Nagami, M.D. in Encino, California, 2021. End of On Famine Fever and Some of the Other Cognate Forms of Typhus by Rudolf Virchow.